Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. I am your host, Lori Jimenez. I created this platform with a sole mission, and that is to inspire people of all backgrounds to create the change they wish to see in their lives and in the world by sharing the examples of those who are. As a listener, you will hear the stories of ordinary men and women with extraordinary stories of overcoming adversities in order to experience the life they dream of. All of these individuals share a common interest. They desire a change for the better, and they are in a relentless pursuit to create that for themselves. If you're looking for inspiration to overcome challenges in your own life, to create a life that you desire to have, then you have come to the right place. You see, the truth is, people everywhere are fighting for what they believe in, and together, with relentless action and mental strength, I have no doubt that we can fulfill that dream. Hello everyone, welcome back to Relentless Minds. For today's interview, we are going to be talking about sex trafficking and why children and teenagers are targeted and the most susceptible to being trafficked. For this topic, I interview Tammy Harris, who is the founder of the Ursus Institute, a nonprofit that works to combat human and sex trafficking. Her organization uses research, data, and community engagement to disrupt human trafficking and to help survivors in their recovery. They also leverage the network within the anti-trafficking community to operate more effectively. In this interview, Tammy dives into her personal experiences in life, having faced mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and explains how these events led her to where she is today in complete dedication to combating sex trafficking nationwide and soon abroad. She talks about how each and every one of us have basic needs of love, support, and belonging, and when those needs are not met, we seek to find them elsewhere, which can be especially dangerous for children who are preyed upon by sex traffickers. Tammy is also working together with film producer Marlon Morrison to create the first-of-its-kind documentary based on true stories to highlight the realities of sex trafficking. In today's interview, she shares with us what this documentary will cover and why she hopes people tune in to watch and educate themselves. More information on the live trailer reveal event for this documentary called Standing with Bears will be provided in the show notes for you to access. Let's start the conversation. Thank you, Tammy, for joining us today on Relentless Minds to share more about your personal story and the work that you do to combat sex trafficking. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me here. It's just, it means a lot. It's important to get the word out and it's a privilege to be here. So thank you. Absolutely. So Tammy, you are the founder and executive director of the Ursus Institute, as well as the executive director of the Voice of Hope International and the president of U.S. operations of the Anti-Trafficking Bureau. You have completely dedicated (laughs) your life to tackling the issue of sex trafficking and have worked tirelessly in Charlotte, North Carolina and the Dominican Republic. I wanted to start this conversation by talking about you and how you came to focus on sex trafficking as your life's work. You know, it's an interesting journey, right? I think life just kind of takes you down this path that you don't expect. And, you know, I have a very strong faith in the Lord, and I feel like I'm exactly where I need to be right now. But it kind of started more like six years ago. I wanted to get more involved in the church. Um, I wanted to do more, um, be more active. 
Um, my kids were getting older, so I was in a place in my life where I could, I had more free time. And I ended up taking over something called the Respect Life Committee at my church and really wanted to show really all aspects of respecting life. So to educate myself on really what that meant, you know, what's going on in my community, what can I bring to my church to educate my parishioners? I started attending events and learning more and was invited to um, a speaking event about human trafficking. And up to that point, I was really kind of probably like 95, 97% of, you know, citizens now where our only experience of sex trafficking is taken and Liam Neeson rescuing people, mm. right? So yep. very like Hollywood-esque type of viewpoint mm. on what sex trafficking is. So I was blown away. I was blown away by what it really is, like how it's really defined, how how it really um, seeps into so many sectors of our community, right? So homelessness and poverty and, you know, social media usage. And it's just really this endless list of the connections between sex trafficking and other things. So the more I was like, oh my gosh, I have to learn more about this. So I started to attend even more events and ended up meeting a woman who herself was sex trafficked as a child. She was a second generation victim of sex trafficking from three to 17. And she had started this nonprofit. I had met her after she had started this nonprofit. And I was blown away by her dedication that she had taken something that was so horrendous in her life and made it and used it to benefit other people, right? So, so many people go through trauma and it's so hard to discuss and talk about. And here she was not only getting up and telling her story but also just dedicating her life to bring adult female victims of trafficking out. So I helped with just different aspects of her nonprofit, ended up becoming a board member and uh, the director of development, got to know the women that were being served. And then it just every woman that I met just tore at my heart. And it's sort of like that light bulb starts to go on and because of things that had happened in my past, it's like, I could have been any of these women. Like, uh, I could have been any of these women. And society judges the prostitutes that they see on the streets, the drug addicts, without really knowing their story. So I worked with this nonprofit for about two years, saw things that really were not being addressed, and decided that it was time to go off on my own and start my own nonprofit to kind of work on the things that were niches that, you know, were just not being addressed at the time. Mm -hmm. So that's really how Ursus evolved and how I got to where I am today. And we're going to talk about Ursus and what it does, like what is that niche that you wanted to focus on? Um, but you mentioned something important I'd like to dive into a little bit, which was um, your background and that you saw yourself basically in these women you could have potentially been there. Right. And so when it comes to your past experiences growing up and with your family, what were the events that could have led you down that path? How was your childhood? So I grew up in poverty. I felt different than the rest of my family members that, that lived in the same town as I did because we were... Um, 
we were poor. My dad, um, you know, in retrospect, he did the best he could with his past and his background. And I'm not excusing his behavior, but he grew up in tremendous um, poverty. And uh, that's the, another story for another day. But, you know, he, he was an alcoholic and it's hard to be a functional family when someone is um, aggressive with his children. Um, he was sexually abusive to my mom. Um, he was very mentally abusive to all of us. So physically, mentally abusive to all of us, sexually abusive to my mom. And then when you grow up in an area of, of a town, wherever that is, you're exposed to more dangerous situations, right? So you're exposed to those who are more involved in drugs, those who are more involved in um, crime. So you see things and you become just involved in being in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? So, you know, growing up a victim of physical abuse till I left for college, really. I mean, I even came home from college and my dad had some very aggressive mannerisms to me. So I knew once I went to college, I just couldn't go back. But it was not only just that, but it was that when you when you're missing that feeling of like you're the world to someone like you're like when you're a child, you want to be your parents world. Right. You want to know that they love you unconditionally. You want to know that you're safe. And when you miss aspects of safety growing up, you look for safety and love in other places. So I became enamored by people who showed me affection, even if they were dangerous, even if they were not um, healthy, functional relationships. And so, I mean, we get a lot into this, you know, we're working on that documentary, we get a lot more into that in the documentary, but really having a relationship with someone who ends up being um, very physically and sexually assertive, and had I stayed in that relationship, I think my current situation would be completely different. Because of who this guy was, I know that if I would have stayed with him, um, I could have been very easily attracted to doing what he wanted me to do because he said he loved me, you know? I mean, when I was 15 and he was 18, he seemed to have it all, you know, the flashy car and the cool parties. So it was really by the grace of God that I was able to go to college and separate myself from a dysfunctional family unit and a dysfunctional relationship system that for many women, they don't escape and they don't get out of and they follow down that path. And, you know, the number one reason why women fall into, at least in the United States, it's different in every country, but the number one reason why children fall into sex trafficking is really that need for love and belonging. If we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, of course, you know, if a person can give you food and shelter, that's huge for the homeless population. That's huge for the runaways. But really, it's like that feeling like I don't, I'm not special to anyone. I'm not, no one really truly cares about me personally. And so when you have a perpetrator who knows these things, they can 
exploit them and use them to their advantage. When you were going through this at such a young age, and you said it was, you know, by, by the hand of God that you did not continue down that path, kind of thinking back at yourself and because you went to college and you were looking for, it seems like an escape. So in that time, like, what were you thinking? Did you understand that what was happening was dangerous? Did you understand that you some, or, or see, think that you had to get, a, get out of this somehow? And how did you take those steps? Because you ultimately decided to get out of that relationship. How was that process for you? So, um, my grandparents were able to financially help to send me to college. But, you know, the interesting thing is I, I've learned very quickly after getting involved in anti-trafficking work that most victims don't self-identify. And it's very hard for us as a society to understand, like, okay, you're being sold for sex. How can you not self-identify? Mm -hmm. But, and again, trauma affects your brain just tremendously and the manipulation that goes on between relationships when you think it's a loving relationship is very very confusing especially if it's your normal so i'll give you an example even though my father raped my mother and it was horrendous to hear it was like i wanted to die like literally i was suicidal by the age of 10 years old because i could not imagine going through 18 years of life listening to this I honestly did not, even though I knew it was bad and wrong, I didn't recognize it as rape. Even though I hated being in a house where my father put his fist in my face and threw me against furniture and slammed me around, I didn't even recognize that as abuse. Like, there wasn't a thought in my mind, like, tell someone about this. You know, I wanted to escape, but I didn't, I would have never told anyone that I was a victim of sexual violence or or physical abuse at the age of 10 11 12 ever and i honestly to be honest with you did not even think about how horrible it was until i had children of my own and the thing about trauma is if you don't deal with it you know it's going to manifest itself in other ways so i started developing a i mean i had throughout my life a horrible eating disorder that just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it wasn't until I identified and started to acknowledge I had an eating disorder and going to therapy is when kind of the lines started to connect and the dots started to connect where it's like, okay, this is from serious trauma. You know, this isn't just because I like to binge. This is because there's trauma that has not been addressed, you know? So yeah, I can totally empathize and sympathize with these women and men for that matter who go through life and don't see themselves as victims. So aren't, they're not going to call a 1-800 number to get rescued because what are they getting rescued from? They're, they're in the life that they think they've chosen, that they think that God has handed to them, you know? When you were at that age and you were in grade school, because this is a really interesting thing because I think um, a lot of people don't understand that. When you were in school and you were with other students, did it ever an opportunity present itself where you were exposed to something and you were like, you know, that's not normal. Like, why am I experiencing this? Um, because I know that in a lot of communities, it's kind of like everyone's dealing with a certain level of, of trauma and abuse. And so right. it all becomes overall like a, a blanket of just, you know, oppression and abuse. And was that your experience 
as well? Or did you have little like signs here and there that something was going on in your life and it wasn't normal? I knew it wasn't normal. I had friends, I'd go over their houses and, you know, their, their parents didn't act like my parents. People could always hear my family screaming um, at each other, even from the outside. And I was humiliated um, when my dad was arrested for drunk driving, his name would be in the paper and I'd get made fun of. So I knew it wasn't normal. I knew it wasn't like the happy, you know, the happiest family that one could imagine. But it was hard for me to make that leap, that next step to like, this isn't fun to this is abusive, you know? Mm. So like I have parents that don't like, maybe they don't like each other or maybe they have a very dysfunctional way of communicating or, but I couldn't mentally make that leap because, you know, when you're a child, you want your parents to be right. You want, and you make yourself wrong, at least in your childhood, they're kind of your God, right? Like they have to be right. And so it has to be something in here. It has to be something with me that's wrong. And so um, I could never make the leap until I became in my thirties to say like, oh my gosh, this is more than just, this is more than just parents who yelled at each other or hurt each other, you know? So are you saying that you discovered in your thirties that it was like a situation of, of abuse? Yeah. I mean, I honestly, and well, it was probably in my twenties when I had my children that I was like, I can't even imagine if someone did this to my child, I would, I would kill them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what happened to me if someone did that to my child, I just don't even know how I could possibly react, you know? And so it was like, that's when the wheels started to turn. Like, this is more than just, that was more than just bad parenting, you know? So that's kind of when the wheels started turning is when I had children of my own and I couldn't even fathom doing even one ounce of what was done to me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think what's very interesting is when you start doing that exploration and really start to to reflect on all of the events of the past and of your childhood, you really start to then pull out how the relation to these, to, to the people that you're helping. I think that, um, there's always like a natural, there's like a natural connection. It's like, somehow I understand you and I just don't know yet, but then you start (laughs) reflecting, right. And you're like, Hey, that's how I was able to experience this exact feeling of like vulnerability or helplessness. And my question to you was, when your life started to take a turn for the better, what was it that was pivotal? Like, what was it that was so crucial for you that changed your life for the better? Oh my goodness. So, so I guess, are we speaking in uh, aspects of healing from the past or just acknowledgement of what happened? I mean, obviously. For you, like what it is that actually you felt made your life better? So that could be any, that could be whatever whatever it ended up. You know, being. like honestly, like my growing up and enduring what I did, and I mean, I have a special needs sister, so having to watch her being abused was hellish. Um, so really, all I wanted when I was a child, what honestly kept me, there was a couple things that kept me alive. I couldn't leave my special needs sister. I believed in God, so I believed I was created for a purpose. And the other thing was I hadn't, I felt like I was born to have children. So it was like, all I wanted to be was a mother. 
And so when I had children of my own, it gave me a meaning in life to create a world of happiness and undeniable love for, for my children that, and, and I wanted them to know that there's nothing in the world that I wouldn't do for them. So having children of my own really gave me so much purpose in this life. So those two things and your sister, where is she now and how is she now? So she's actually up in Pennsylvania still. Um, I'm my brother and I share legal guardianship of her. Uh, so she's in a home for, for, uh, with other women with disabilities. So before COVID, I was going up there once a month to visit her. My mom passed away in October and she was kind of my sister's world. So, um, I promised my mom before I died, before she died, that I'd go up every month to see her. And it stinks that COVID is what it is right now, but I'm planning on seeing her in a few weeks here. So she's a little older than me, but she's probably around like a six-year-old as far as intellect. So having to understand why she can't go to work and why I can't visit, it's hard for her to comprehend. I know that, and I thank you for really opening up about your life and about things that you went through, um, because all of this is really important for us to understand, like how that inspired you to create what you're doing right now and being so resilient throughout it, you know, and just being so passionate about it. But when it came to learning to love yourself and to heal, how was that journey for you? Well, I mean, I think it's always a work in progress, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um trauma it's you know it's a monster and it's an ongoing process to really love myself i mean i i still go to therapy at least once if not twice a week to deal with the trauma especially in what you know we're seeing now in in this industry and but for loving myself it really is it's a it's a work in progress because trauma makes you feel like you're not good enough trauma makes you feel like you're unlovable trauma makes you feel like mm-hmm you're not a person, you're just an, a thing, an object. And so really getting to therapy helped me on that journey and trying to learn how to love myself and not be self-destructive. You know, and I mean, we could just do another on a show on just like how trauma impacts the brain. But when you associate p- pleasure as pain, it's hard to be happy, you know? I, therapy has been- Pleasure as pain, can you- yeah, so a pain as pleasure, excuse me. I switched. So so when your dad who you love and who used to put you on his back and play with you in the house and you know um all of a sudden switches a a light switch and now he rapes your mom in the room next to you. And so it's like I'm supposed to be happy. This person's supposed to love me. So your brain starts to get almost very confused on what's loving. And now things that are painful almost seem like those are the things that are supposed to be pleasurable. You know, if this is love and love hurts, then what am I seeking? I must be seeking pain, right? And hence for me, manifesting in an eating disorder and for other people that can manifest in other ways, self-harming behaviors, And so it's hard to love yourself when you hate your behavior, but it's all that you know. And so I'm very lucky. I have a great, amazing therapist. And I think that's really something that started me on my journey with self-love and self-care. 
you know, and this is why another reason why I just can't stop doing what I do. It's because I know that there is this insane journey that these women and these men are going to have to go on to find healing and dealing day in and day out with, like you said, finding self-love, finding self-care, finding a way to accept yourself for whomever you are and love yourself for that and saying, you know what, I'm Tammy and, you know, I have an eating disorder and I'm Tammy and, you know, fill in the blank, but I'm still a good person. I'm, I'm still doing the best that I can. I'm still lovable. So really uh, trauma, I think loving yourself, at least where I'm standing, it's a work in progress every day. It's like learning how to paint or learning how to sing or learning how to ski. You just keep working on it. And if it's something important to you, you just work and work until probably the day I die. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's true. It's, it's something that's ongoing because I feel like you, you discover things that you didn't realize you missed, you know, and it kind of, as you get exposed to different situations and whatnot, but you were talking about your counselor and that's been a resource for you. That's been very important. So I wanted to dive into now your organization, your Assist Institute, and talk about the work that you're doing with your organization to help tackle the issue of sex trafficking, as well as helping the survivors. So tell us about your organization, Ursus Institute, why you created it, and what do you focus on? Wow. So the Ursus Institute has become very multifaceted. Originally, it had started because I was working with a member of the General Assembly on a piece of legislation that would have given um, additional funding for nonprofits, um, education for law enforcement, education for schools, um, to understand human trafficking. As we were working on this bill, um, it was with Representative Brawley at the time out of Matthews, North Carolina, and it just really couldn't get a lot of traction. And the main reason wasn't because it wasn't such a great bill. It was because there was no real good unbiased data about the realities of sex trafficking. So now, for example, like we utilize Polaris for our numbers. Most people, if you quote numbers on prevalence, they go to Polaris. So Polaris uses 1-800-NUMBERS as kind of a resource for prevalence. So if you're a victim and you want out of sex trafficking, you call their 1-800-NUMBER or you text a number, and then they match you with the closest law enforcement agent. Or... If Joe Smith sees sex trafficking, he can call the number and say, hey, can you get law enforcement to, you know, this gas station on the corner of East Boulevard because I think I see sex trafficking. So now why this is so heavily biased and why the numbers for North Carolina and every other state are so undervalued is because, A, as we've talked about, most victims do not self-identify. So they're not looking for a 1-800 number to call. Um, there was a survey done by Thorne, the nonprofit started by Ashton Kutcher. They surveyed survivors after they were out, and three-fourths had never even seen the number to call to even escape if they wanted to. And if people aren't educated on sex trafficking, you can be like, you know, you can see something completely disgusting walk by, an older man and a girl dressed inappropriately, and think, oh, that's none of my business, that's probably her grandpa. I never know enough about sex trafficking to say, like, I should call someone. Or they're like, oh, you know, I don't want to bother 911 for something that really isn't an emergency. So they dismiss it. 
So, you know, trying to get this piece of legislation passed, knowing how much it was needed, knowing how many girls we were turning away every month, just in Charlotte, North Carolina, from this one nonprofit, I knew that we needed to start showing the numbers in a more realistic fashion if we were ever going to change legislation, if we we're ever going to get additional funding to nonprofits who do the work, who are actually the boots on the ground doing the work. So I decided to go off. And currently, um, we were working at first on prevalence studies. And now that's kind of uh, morphed into an app that we're working on that would be utilized by nonprofits, law enforcement agents, basically vetted members of the anti-trafficking community to connect and show a more realistic picture for prevalence and connecting the dots and showing the connections between a girl being trafficked um, online in South Carolina and the same network trafficking girls up in Virginia. So it's really going to be a way to connect. And that app is called Stella. And we're currently uh, in the process of developing the MVP for Stella. We also are opening a um, transitional home. Our first victim, our first survivor was supposed to come in a few weeks ago, but because of COVID, we've postponed her arrival. So this transition home is going to have trauma-informed care for her to help her with reacclimation. Um, that's another thing that is greatly needed is not only just shelters for people who you know, come out of a life of trafficking, but also having trauma-informed care. Because data has shown us if you just take a victim and put her in a homeless shelter, you're not avoiding recidivism, right? She's going to go back into life because that's all she knows and that's how she's going to get money. So our program will have, does have trauma-informed care. We partner with an NGO in the Dominican Republic to do rescue operations and intel operations. So I go down pretending to be a buyer and collect information from traffickers, let them self-incriminate um, themselves, give the evidence to police, and we also help in rescue operations to help women get out. People who hear me speak a lot will reach out to me to help them, just different things that they need for their children that I can't really speak too much on because of the privacy of it, mm -hmm. but... Let's say, just say for an example, if someone heard this podcast and they knew that we had the resources to search social media for their daughter, who many think is a runaway, but they believe that they were pulled into sex trafficking, we could help them hopefully uh, narrow down the search and hopefully know at least the circle she's connected into. That's a lot of great resources that you guys have available and a lot of important work that you're looking to provide um, in order to tackle and correct, hopefully, some, and create these changes in, in sex trafficking. Because your focus is data, what is, if you could give us some information on the prevalence that there is for people to kind of get an idea now, what is the prevalence of that? The, what is the overall situation of human trafficking or sex trafficking in Charlotte? But that's still, I mean, anyone who tells you they have the exact numbers is wrong. It's hard. Yeah, because like I said, I'm hoping that when the app is up and running, we'll have a better idea. I mean, when I was with this particular nonprofit, and like, again, one nonprofit in the whole state of North Carolina, we were turning away 10 women uh, a month that we couldn't serve after, you know, the women that we already had there. Um, I think Polaris says like about 800 people are trafficked, but that's 
let's just think about this, okay? Just in the United States, there are almost, there's 800,000 children that are just missing, right? Just, we don't know where they are. They either um, ran away from foster care, they ran away from home, they're living on the streets. So if we think like, what if only like one-tenth of those children were being sex trafficked, right? And then you start getting into what about all the girls and boys that we think are runaways from their other good family homes, you know? So we know that just from calls that Charlotte is number one in the state of North Carolina. We know that North Carolina is a top 10 state for sex trafficking. But again, it's like data is funny. Like take that with a grain of salt, right? Because let's just say, and I'm just pulling, I'm just going to pick on a state. I don't really know. Let's just say that South Dakota is number 50 for sex trafficking on the list, right? Um, But that doesn't mean that there's no sex trafficking in South Dakota. That probably means that no one's seeing the 1-800 number there or no one's been trained in sex trafficking there Mm -hmm. or you know, there's a gazillion reasons why they could have the number one. They could be the number one state for sex trafficking and and no one understands sex trafficking in that state. And again, I'm just picking on the state. Yeah. But, you know, it's so much about education. It's so much. And maybe Charlotte is number one in the state for understanding sex trafficking, you know? And so yeah. it's like, you've got to take data with a great assault. And for me, when I give presentations, I'm like, you know, does it matter? Does it matter if Charlotte's number one? Does it matter if we're number 250? If there are girls in our city that are being enslaved for sex or for labor or for um, domestic servitude, that's someone's daughter or sister or granddaughter. Like, it shouldn't matter what number we are on that scale, right? And so it's a responsibility to change things because because we... Because it's wrong. wrong, Right, Absolutely, it's wrong. And I think people, I've... I think people don't realize that even in a developed country like the United States, it happens. Right. You know, so I think it completely surprises them that around the corner, this is going on. Mm-hmm. And and it's because of this complete lack of, of information, the data that you're saying is missing. And so I think it's important, you were, you were talking about the, the resources you guys are looking into in order to provide the data or to be able to... Um, to, to pick up this information, this data through law enforcement agencies, like people who are coming in contact with possibly victims, right? Right. Um, so could you tell me about the, I'm, I'm interested in two things. Um, if you could tell me about the factors that create opportunities for human trafficking, mm-hmm. as well as what areas in the sex trafficking efforts are not being addressed. We can start off with what are what factors are creating opportunities because I think if those oppor- those possible opportunities are there, then you can begin to think there could be a possibility for sex trafficking in this situation. Right. Yeah, and I'm going to go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm going to go back mm-hmm. to like what are the fundamental needs that we all have to have to have met. Right. So if you have a child who is only gets their meal from school and they are hungry most of the day they're a sitting target for a perpetrator who can easily fill that need it's like you know i can provide for you i can give you that meal and then the the average perpetrator in the united states spends nine months grooming a child to sex trafficking nine months because it's such an investment because it's so much easier to sell kids than it is to sell drugs because it's so much more profitable to sell kids than it is to sell drugs it's so much and because of a low understanding, there's so much less risk. 
So they can go on and on, you know, I'm as a side story, I know guys who have spent time in federal prison and the guys that they were spending time in prison with were in for other charges and bragged about how they trafficked kids, but they weren't in for trafficking. They were in for other charges. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, perpetrators are narcissistic and love to brag. So they are very proud of the fact that they can do this and manipulate the children or even the adults into this realm. So again, what need is not being filled? And studies have said that need for love and belonging. So, you know, children can actually be sex trafficked right out of their own home. And the parents have no idea that this 13-year-old girl thinks that she's having a secret boyfriend who's 18, but he's really just grooming her for being trafficked down the road. Like, can you send me some naked pictures? I'm your boyfriend. And then, you know, it's just a very slow, methodical, detailed process that perpetrators know to do. And so the parents who are too involved in their work, too involved in their other activities to really spend more than 10 minutes with their child. And I'm not even saying that. I mean, you could be the most loving parent and great parent and still fall prey to your kid just gets messed up and mixed up in the wrong crowds, right? So it's really what need is not filled. So like if a perpetrator sees a group of girls in a mall and the one girl has her head down and she's like the oddball of the group, who's getting... Who's getting, getting you know, her. yeah, she's the one, you know, because she obviously has some need. She doesn't feel like she fits in, you know, she's the target. And so it's understanding these things that unless society really pushes for sex education awareness or more law enforcement awareness or, you know, fill in the blank, going to these uh, and, and churches and, and different institutions having people come in and speak about what sex trafficking really is. You know, that girl on the street who's 25 and strung out, I guarantee you she didn't start that way. Over 90, I think it's like 97% of all girls who sell their bodies over 18 were sexually abused before their 18th birthday. So they don't all, all of a sudden turn 18 and say, you know, I'm free now. I can get off drugs and, you know, leave my perpetrator and I won't be afraid of him coming to track me down and kill me, you know? It's like you said as well, the trauma. So Right. It, right, the trauma. It's just it's still there. It's still going to be it's still going to be affecting them in life unless it's worked through and even that that's a process. For sure. And so I think it's very clear that the approach to sex trafficking and the efforts that have to be made are multidimensional. There's a lot of people that have to be involved. There's a lot of moving parts. And I think that an important component of that, as well as you mentioned, was awareness, right? I think sex trafficking is it's a conversation not many people like to have. It right. makes people uncomfortable. And I think that's a culture that needs to change. So I wanted to talk about the documentary that you mm-hmm. guys are creating um, called Standing with Bears. And it's a documentary that is going to highlight sex trafficking to bring awareness to educate people and what was it what is it that is going to be the focus of the documentary well, and what do you hope on achieving with that so you know the the documentary is intended to educate society on the realities of human trafficking 
and it goes down many different roads, right? It's we take a lot of different roads, and I think I'm really proud of ourselves. I think we have found a way to tell the story from many different facets in a way that will paint a complete picture on sex trafficking in a way that has not been done before. So we have my background, my history, and why I do what I do. We have the Dominican Republic um, component. And a lot of people say, like, why the Dominican Republic? They have the highest rate per capita of sex trafficking in the world. And most of their trafficking comes from American and Europeans that go to um, exploit. So I feel like if we're part of the problem, like we need to be part of the solution, right? Mm -hmm. So this journey will take the viewer to the Dominican Republic and see for themselves, like how we as Americans are exploiting the impoverished country of the Dominican Republic. They'll hear from the mouths of those who are actually enslaved right now of how they got into the situation. They'll hear from survivors of how they're dealing with being a survivor of sex trafficking and the people that traffic them. And they're going to hear from um, those who work in different industries that either see victims or perpetrators or um, work in some components of anti-trafficking, as well as we're going to really dive into that PTSD mental component of trauma and the triggers that set someone up for a lifetime of really trying not to keep failing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to become loving to themselves and caring to themselves. And so I, I'm proud of ourselves uh, working with Marlon um, Morrison, the director and producer. And, you know, I, I just think the fact that we're able to encompass so much and it's all based on true incidences facts people people uh right right like right. the, the true people these aren't actors there's nothing right. that's been exaggerated um this is all you know true and it's it's shocking um i know it's you know not going to be easy, easiest things to watch but it's you know my, one of the most important things to watch and i think it's very special that you decided to go the route of cre of creating a documentary that you teamed up with marlon to create a documentary what impact were you aiming to have through that medium as opposed to an interview or as opposed to an article? Right. I mean, I think because of the reach with the documentary, we can have an impact in people around the world, right? You put a documentary out there um, in whatever fashion that people around the world can download and watch and educate themselves. And the truth for the United States are the truths for France. They're the truths for all countries, right? So, and the truths for the Dominican Republic as a developing country, those are the truths for the other developing countries. The poverty, the the corruption, the the fact that nonprofits are doing the work and the boots on the ground and, and struggling to do it with such little funding. It's just, it's amazing. Like, it's just, it's amazing what the people who have hearts for the issue will do and, and gain nothing monetarily from it just because they purely cannot stand the sight of watching one more girl get sucked into the life and not come out. What is the goal that you achieve, that you're hoping to achieve with the documentary when you put this out there for the public to see? Um, you know, I'd love to see more legislation put into place. We're working on some legislation in our state right now. Um, I'm working on something with Representative Jake Johnson to protect um, 
victims from their perpetrators when they testify. So I'd like to see more legislation. I'd like to see more education in our schools. You know, parents are afraid of that word sex trafficking, but that's not gonna keep, you know, that's not gonna keep them. That's like saying, if I don't talk about drugs, kids won't get involved in drugs, you know? That's just not realistic. You have to educate them. So more education in our schools, um, additional funding from our government to those boots on the ground who are really risking so much um, to bring girls home. And to keep girls out, to see, you know, I, I, you know what I will like, I tell my story of, of physical, emotional, sexual abuse. And I talk about the journey through therapy. Like I want women who, I mean, if there's a woman out there that's like, you know what? I, I really, I, I feel the same way Tammy does. Like, I felt like I want to die. I felt like I can't control X, Y, Z. You know, maybe I should go get therapy too. Like, I wanted to speak to the women who, there's so many women that are victims of sexual assaults, you know, and they blame themselves and they pretend like if they just push in the back of their mind, it's not going to affect them. And that's unfortunately not true. So I want to impact those who are victims of trauma, man or women, to go get help, you know, and for therapists out there to, to reach out and do more pro bono work to help those who need it the most, you know. Um, that actually taps into a question I was going to ask you about what you wish to tell people who are experiencing similar emotions and events. And so you said, getting help, go and seek that help. Um, you know, counseling can be expensive. I think people mm -hmm. kind of straight off the bat, a kind of like a lot of resources are like, it's unavailable because I can't afford it. Right. Um, what can you say about that? Are there free resources they can look into? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends where they are, um, but I definitely, a lot of workplaces will offer um, counseling to their employees. So it's hard not to humble yourself and ask for help. It took me till I was in my mid thirties to admit that I needed help, but you know, it's a humbling thing to say, like, go to your HR person and say, you know, can you tell me um, what exactly is covered? Do I get, you know, I'm just dealing with some things. I need to talk to someone. Um, or go to a friend and say, hey, have you heard of any really good therapists in the area? Because just depending on the facility, some communities do offer free resources. So, you know, just do the do the digging. And if you want help, you know, I get texts and emails about all kinds of things. And I always help the best to my abilities to help people get the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. So even if someone would reach out to me and say, hey, could you help me do some digging? Because I just don't even know where to start. I'd be happy to do so. Wonderful. So yeah. reaching out to local organizations um, to see if they are if they have resources available, or if not, if they obviously probably have a bigger connection and they can find some some sort of help there for them to receive. Right, for sure. But it's the out there. It there. is available. Yeah, yeah available. it just depends where you live and the situation. And so details would vary. But yeah, reach out to local nonprofits. And if you don't get an answer, you know, I, I really don't mind helping people the, the best I can. Okay. Well, I'll definitely be leaving your information um, in the show notes for at least those local to Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, okay. That way they can they can reach out to you if need be. Um, I wanted to kind of bring this into this last question about the importance of people to understand or seek to educate themselves more and talk about human trafficking. Can you talk to us about why this is so important? Uh, because nothing changes unless you start a conversation, right? 
Um, things just, if you ignore them, they, they're just going to take on a life of their own and get worse. So, you know, that's why it's so important because we're not going to solve it. And maybe that's why people shy away from it is because there's never going to be an end to it. But we can educate, we can make a difference, we can lessen someone's pain, we can educate our boys on why pornography is tied to trafficking, we can educate our boys on how to treat a girl, we can teach all of our children their value and how to get help if, if they feel like there's something wrong. So, you know, it's just because we can't bring change unless we talk about it for anything. Thank you so much. Thank you thanks. so much, Tammy. No, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time to be on today to talk about your work, to talk about the importance of, of sex trafficking, human trafficking, to having that conversation, and also discussing your organization, Ursus Institute, and all the work that you're doing there. Um, and this documentary, Standing with Bears, which we'll be providing an additional interview for, uh, for people to learn more about what it's all about. But thank you for everything, and I wish you the best in the efforts that you're doing, and I hope that you go far in combating sex trafficking. Thank you. I appreciate that, and thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and feel inspired and would like to be a part of the Relentless Minds community, you can join the movement for change on Instagram and Twitter. We would also love to know how your experience has been as a listener. If you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next week for another powerful story. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.